Welcome to Think Voices, our interview series featuring notable thinkers and timely topics associated with the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. In these days of the coronavirus pandemic, we remain committed to support the PICT community through online outreach. And while we reject online teaching, since we believe critical and creative thinking best happens face-to-face, we hope our podcasts, social media campaigns, and other online offerings will help bridge the gap until we can welcome you in person at one of our courses once again. My name is Avery Mamer Sayers, and today I'm talking to Ian McKenzie from the Center for Critical Thought at the University of Kent. Hi, Ian, how are you? I'm very well, Evelyn. Nice to be here. <laughs> nice to have you here. Ian, you are interested in the concept of critic, and you describe your research as a pursuit of pure critic, defined as an idea of critic that does not dissolve into the to and fro of opinion. And the Center for Critical Thought, which you co-founded at Kent in 2013, brings together thinkers from a multitude of fields, ranging from political thought to theater studies, in practicing a critical approach that transcends disciplinary boundaries. In the current health crisis, we are subjected to a seemingly endless barrage of criticism, whether it regards the political response to the crisis, public behavior, or related topics. Now, from your writings, I know that you insist on the difference between criticism and critic. Clearly, not every publicly expressed opinion would qualify as critic. And probably, you would be inclined not to consider most current instances of criticism as actual critic. Could you elaborate on your understanding of critic and perhaps tell us why you regard critical thought to be relevant and necessary today? Thanks, Evelyn. That's a, that's a really fascinating and kind of uh, challenging question, actually. I wonder um, if I might begin with a hesitation, um, a hesitation about the value of critical thought today. Um, it seems to me that every day is a day for critical thought and that today is no different. The pandemic makes critical thought no more or no less necessary than the day you wake up, I think, with you know, 30 emails in your inbox that you have to deal with, or for that matter, the day when you walk outside your door and you get a friendly smile from your neighbor. For me, these are all days that require uh, critical thought. And I think my hesitation is that we um, embrace uh, moments like this uh, pandemic moment um, in, in a slightly strange way sometimes as critical thinkers. But let me try and put a little bit more <coughs> kind of, excuse me, <coughs> um, flesh in the bones of that and, and try to kind of give it a slightly more uh, critical uh, response perhaps. And I want to do that by embracing a couple of critical methods uh, of which I'm very fond. Uh, critical methods that remind us to be cautious about today that remind us to be cautious about our current conjuncture. And those two, two methods are uh, genealogy, particularly in the hands of Foucault, and rhizomatics uh, in the hands of Deleuze and Guattari. And I think when we, you know, when we take one of the, the, the kind of key uh, slogans uh, for Foucault's genealogy, um, it's a useful reminder for us, because of course Foucault reminded us that genealogy is a history of the present. This was, yes, of course, a reminder to historians to always situate and ground their work in present concerns. But, and I think we sometimes forget this as, as Foucauldians, as members of the kind of critical thought community, it was also 
uh, a warning to guard us against what Foucault called presentism. This idea that we should simply focus on the present uh, in order to um, sharpen our critical tools. And genealogy, I think, is a really interesting um, way of thinking about how the present has to be questioned, contextualized, problematized through this history of the present. And it allows us to kind of think about the, the, the different kinds of focus that um, we can bring once we've given up uh, a search for historical origins and once we've given up a kind of fetishization of the present. It allows us to focus on the way things uh, are by thinking about how they've come to be the way things are. And that, in Foucault's hands, of course, allows us to think through the complexities uh, of the event. Uh, he once referred to the, the great polyhedron of intelligibility that's required to, uh, to make sense of events. And it's such a kind of... Um, uh, a kind of charming phrase almost that, 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 that I always go back to it, that there's this complicated dimensionality to all events. And of course, that means that there's a complicated dimensionality to, our, to the relationship between the past and the present. And so that's my more, uh, that's my first more kind of cautious uh, response to uh, some of the kind of uh, critical uh, fetishization of today that we get. But I want to mention the other one as well, which is... Um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's uh, rhizomatics. I'll do this quite briefly. I mean, one could say a lot about this, of course, as one could with, with genealogy. <laughs> but but for me, rhizomatics as, a, as a, a method that involves the making of multiplicities is a reminder that uh, we have to do away with some of the kind of founding uh, categories, not just origins and, and the present, but also the one and the many and the macro and the micro. And, you know, I've read some fascinating work over the last few weeks um, that's kind of employed uh, a lot of these kind of founding categories. But I'm not convinced that the virus really tells us anything about, say, global capitalism, or that global capitalism tells us anything about the virus, at least not the truth about the virus or the truth about global capitalism. I think it's much more interesting. There's something happening in between. And that's really the... the, the, the um, the motif that binds kind of rhizomatics and genealogy uh, in the hands of those thinkers. But I'm kind of slightly digressing, to be honest, Evelyn, because I, I think, you know, there, there's, uh, these are just ways of expressing a certain kind of hesitation, and I should probably kind of embrace the, 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 um, the challenge of the question um, a little bit more, more fully. Um, you're dead right. I mean, I kind of, I do understand there to be a difference between criticism and critique. Mm -hmm. Criticism for me is, uh, it's necessary, it's part of life, it's an interesting and, and fascinating thing that we do, but it's always done within established frames of reference. I mean, for example, established ideological positions, or maybe shared conceptions of what an ideology is, or maybe a shared understanding of the subject that diagnoses these ideologies and so on. Critique, in contrast, for me is always a creative activity. And you know, there'll be some Kantians who, who will be surprised by that, but by no means all, because we know, we know the basic structure of Kant's idea of critique. You know, he, he, was, he was motivated by the indifferentists or the indifferentism that was emerging as a result of the stalemate between the rationalists and the empiricists. This idea that, well, you know, you'll never get to the, to the real bottom of it all, so... Well, you, you, you philosophers have your fun and games and, you know, the rest of us can just be indifferent to what you're up to. Mm. That kind of sense of the 
indifference of it um, really um, forced Kant into wanting to make a difference. And, you know, for me, that's that's the kind of motivating idea of critique is that sense that we want to make a difference in the face of indifference. And, and indifference results, importantly, from endless criticism. So critique is always a critique of criticism. Mm -hmm. And it will be so, serve as such, when it's creative. Only when it becomes creative can it overcome, for me, the, the, the dead ends um, that one gets from endless uh, swapping of critical positions within um, established uh, frames of reference. I'm probably going on a, a, a bit too long already, Evelyn, to be honest, but I mean, I think um, if I can kind of maybe turn my, my initial hesitation into, into something a little bit more um, kind of productive, um, I think, you know, one of the key uh, elements uh, when we think about critique is that it needs to be a form of creativity all the way down. But creativity all the way down, you'll, as you'll understand, requires us precisely to work in the middle. And that's where I connect that sense of uh, critique to uh, the work of Seifiko and uh, Deleuze and Guattari. And, you know, it gives us a chance um, today, if you will, but really today, like every other day, it gives us a chance to think about how we make something happen in the middle of it all. And that, to me, seems to be uh, the, the, the key thing. Thanks, Sigrun. Oh, thank you for that. And and uh, any possibility of critique uh, depends on the recognition of crisis. But in the current crisis, we also have uh, seen the opposite of critique, namely the ceaseless production of political, scientific and other discourses intended to instill a sense of predictability, control and, 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 and business as usual. Critique expresses the possibility that everything could have been different. Are we then living through a crisis without critique or are we uh, somehow avoiding the actual crisis of our times by avoiding genuine critic? Well, that's another cracking question, Evan. Um, you know, I, I, I have a sneaking feeling that um, you've probably got a lot more to say about this than I do, because I think actually it, it's a, it, it taps into uh, a really uh, fascinating, fascinating kind of lineage of kind of critical thought when we think about the connections between uh, these terms, crisis and critique. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder, you know, it might be that my kind of understanding of critique kind of uh, even in some sense kind of hamstrings those kind of deeper understandings. But nonetheless, I mean, let me have a, let me have a go as to, as to what I think is, uh, is maybe kind of going on with, uh, with those kind of fascinating issues. I mean, I think for me, it's fundamentally a question about the status of the subject. And, you know, your, your, your thought kind of um, already acknowledges that there's a, there's a kind of strong connection between critique and crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Classically speaking, that's that's through notions of judgment and decision. Um, one might even say it's through notions of uh, turning point. That's a kind of interesting one, particularly if we kind of connect that back through to uh, some of the ways that um, Foucault and Deleuze and Guattari think about um, this kind of uh, making of the multiple and the kind of mentalization. They often talk about turning points. We might even, of course, of course, relate that then to um, mathematical notions like critical points and so on and so forth. So there's clearly something going on here around uh, 
the, the kind of etymology of crisis and critique that allows us to, to bring questions of judgment, decision, turning points and so on uh, to the fore. And we typically understand uh, the subject here as a, a kind of uh, operator, um, as the mediator perhaps of these judgments and decisions. And the subject is typically the individual subject, I suspect, um, classic kind of Kantian sense, perhaps. Of course, it might also be a kind of collective subject, and we can, you know, we can see ways in which one can think about the subject uh, that makes the decision, the subject that is um, embracing the turning point as a collective subject. It might be that the subject even has this kind of, you know, world historical status, uh, if we look at, you know, certain versions of the Hegelian and kind of Marxist um, traditions. But I think what I think what I want to suggest um, is that this um, subjective basis for judgment and decision, for if you like critical thought in our if you like kind of time of crisis, is strictly speaking no longer available to us. Now the us there might be a little bit paradoxical and probably need to be unpacked in some interesting sorts of ways, but for the moment I'll kind of bracket it off and put it to one side, just as a leave as a kind of little rhetorical marker rather than a, a kind of uh, carrying any conceptual weight. But let me go back to the main point. The main point, I think, is that we are in a time where the, uh, the subject that would be the subject that enacts the judgment or that enacts the decision or that takes advantage of the turning point is no longer available to us. I think that subject uh, may well be uh, long gone. And I think I'd like to go back to kind of Foucault and, and Deleuze and Guattari to kind of think about why that might be the case. Because there's a, you know, forgive me for putting it so kind of colloquially, but there's a kind of, you know, a story one can tell through Foucault and Deleuze particularly that takes us from sovereign societies to disciplined societies to control societies. But I think it's kind of crucial in understanding why uh, it may well be that the, the subject is no longer uh, available to us as the mediator of uh, crisis and uh, critique. We know the story, uh, you know, the story of uh, the, sub the free subject uh, proclaiming his bourgeois white freedom against the monarch um, in order to overthrow the, the uh, uh, traditional forms of sovereign power. And we also know the story that, as Foucault so beautifully put it, you know, with the liberties came the disciplines, um, you know, that you couldn't, you couldn't have that kind of freedom without also instantiating a whole disciplinary apparatus that uh, effectively uh, made sure that these free subjects internalised uh, the norms that would enable uh, government to, uh, to function. Equally, we know that for Foucault, one can challenge the forms of subjectivity that, that, that have been disciplined into existence through transgression. And uh, although this is probably a more complicated issue in Foucault than I would like to, that I'm going to, that I'm going to summarize right now, but you know, there's, a, there's an appeal from you know, the history of madness on to certain uh, transgressive subjects uh, who break out of these disciplinary institutions in various ways uh, as, the, as the subjects who can invoke that crisis and bring about that critique and give us new forms of knowledge and give us new ways of thinking about uh, uh, how we um, act and how we feel and 
how we might sit, talk, or how we might behave in the world. But I am fundamentally, uh, you know, in agreement with Deleuze when Deleuze says we need the postscript. We need the postscript to discipline, and we need to understand uh, that, um, you know, as Foucault understood, disciplinary societies, by the time he was analysing them, were already coming to a close, and something else was happening. And we can talk about what the something else is in all sorts of different ways. It's very early days yet, but I, I like Deleuze's way of talking about um, the something else, the next, as the, the control society. It's not a radical rupture, it's a development, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of refinement, but it's one which I think crucially has um, unpicked uh, the subjective basis uh, that uh, we typically uh, assume connects critique and uh, crisis. And it does so because control society thrives on transgression. It takes a transgressive subject and makes it its own. And that transgressive subject then becomes uh, kind of shattered into what Deleuze so beautifully calls its individuated parts, such that we no longer have an individual, be it disciplined or transgressive, that can really um, uh, hold that subjective position. But the transgressions become the, the, the source of the pulling apart of the subject and the uh, modulating into uh, different forms of control that he talks about uh, so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, it sounds quite abstract, but I think, I think we just kind of know this. You know, I think we know that we are just simply kind of beings held in um, tension rather than in unity, mm-hmm. um, almost a little bit like the elements of a, of a Kandinsky or the, the, all the different stuff that's thrown around Tracy Emmons' bed that makes a unity, but none of it uh, is really held together in, in, in any kind of individual sort of way. Mm-hmm. And, and this world of control, this world of deep mining of big data um, is, is, is so crucial because, you know, I think the flicker of an eye on a screen uh, or across a screen is just as important then as the, um, as the feet um, on the streets in a moment of protest. And it changes, therefore, um, what we have uh, as a possible basis to uh, mediate crisis and critique, because we don't have, in my view, we don't have a, a subject, at least not yet, that we can kind of turn to. We don't have a clear uh, way of um, articulating what the uh, revolutionary, shall we say, subject of control is going to be, because control is about dissolving uh, different forms of subjectivity. And we know this because, you know, we're more interested, um, and, you know, here at the risk of um, kind of contradicting myself, you know, these days we are more interested in a curve rather than a person, in a projection rather than a summation, and so on and so forth. These are figures of control rather than um, uh, discipline and or uh, sovereign power. So I think, you know, for me, um, I think, you know, we've lost the subject that might decide, we've lost the subject that can judge if this is a time to decide, even in principle, if you like, or even in theory, again, with a little bit of a kind of cautious, at least for now. Mm-hmm. And personally, I don't lament this because I still think there are opportunities for resistance um, within controlled societies. Nonetheless, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, as to, you know, what the other uh, possible options are out there. And I remain, 
you know, um, kind of optimistic and, uh, you know, um, on the lookout for how different forms of resistance may in due course kind of coagulate into something we might call a subject of control. But for the moment, I just don't see that subject as um, available to us. I hope that makes some sense, Evan. <laughs> yes. And, and I know that you're not only talking, uh, you're working on the public sphere nowadays because you sent me uh, the article that you were working for and my, 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 my third and last question is going to be about that. So, uh, in your assessment of critic, you speak of the need to critic the idea of the public sphere itself. And now the current pandemic has made people painfully aware of the concept of the public sphere. But we also see that the sphere, insofar as it even existed as a single entity, is heavily contested by various uh, factions, or in your words, publics and counterpublics. And your aim is to find a non-reductive and inclusive account of a public sphere. Would you like to talk a little bit about your conception of the public sphere and what kind of public and what kind of sphere are we talking about here? Yeah, thanks, everyone. I mean, let me begin by kind of immediately name-checking my, my co-author, um, Chris Henry here, kind of fellow of the centre uh, as well. And, and between us, we've been kind of thinking about this for quite some time and long since before the pandemic. Um, it seems like something kind of weird is happening um, around the public and the private. And um, there's a sense in which, you know, one finds oneself almost at one's most... Um, intimate and private, uh, having one's most intimate and private moments uh, sometimes in the public world and sometimes having one's most public moments in the private world. Now, I do think this is one area where, you know, the pandemic has in some sense kind of um, exacerbated and amplified perhaps this kind of trajectory. I'm absolutely convinced there's a tra trajectory already in existence. Um, but I think, you know, as we've seen uh, people shift their working lives um, into their houses, as we've seen people who go out of their houses but walk in a private bubble um, of PPE, but also a private bubble of distancing and so on and so forth. I think we're beginning to see a, a, a very significant change in the relationships between uh, the public and the private domains. So Chris and I just wanted to kind of Get our head around it. We wanted to think, well, what literature is out there to try and help us make sense of, of this? Now we know there's a great and thriving literature on the public sphere. And it it, it kind of has done a lot of work um, over the years to to chart um, a lot of these changes. So, you know, from the early uh, work around the internet as a form of public sphere, you know, through to more recent work on uh, the, the emergence of the new right populisms and what that does to the public sphere and so on and so forth. There's a great array of, of work out there. But what kind of interested us was that um, all of that work seemed to get stuck. It seemed to be that, you know, they all wanted the same thing. They all wanted this account of the public sphere that would be so um, open as to account for the fact that we can't entirely predict what forms of publicity will emerge mm -hmm. and yet they all seem to be stuck because something was kind of getting in the way that would allow this properly uh, inclusive non-reductive account to to uh, take shape so chris and i started kind of working away at it and, and throwing a few things around uh, and um, 
it struck us that in a sense it's it's really quite straightforward the the public sphere um almost as a kind of concept kind of gives the gives the clue we 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 work with models of of the public sphere um where we think of it as a space that exists in between state and society which is the kind of parking all the way back to the kind of classic uh, let's say Habermasian formulation, because I think that's the one that most people would go to, even though it's got a prehistory before that. Mm-hmm. And um, that sense of a space, which then gets um, filled with um, forms of public discourse, uh, is the kind of typical model. And what we saw was that there's 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 been a drive to uh, pluralize the forms of public um, and the forms of public discourse. Hence, as you completely rightly mentioned, everything the, the notion of counterpublics and that kind of emerging from uh, Rita Felsky, Nancy Fraser, Warner, Nassim, and so on, um, that there's an attempt to pluralize the nature of the publics and public discourse that enters this space. But there's been no account of the fact that the model still remains the same. Something fills the space that makes the public sphere. And when you think about that, that's an utterly classic notion. Because that's, um, in the jargon, sorry for throwing this word around, I mean, it's only recently I've actually come to to really understand it, to be honest. Um, it's a form of hylomorphism. It's a kind of, you know, um, it's a mould that gives, uh, uh, that that forms uh, the matter into the shape. And it's a kind of classically Aristotelian account of um, why we have the things we have. Or in particular how we can talk about something being the same, even though it changes very dramatically. You know, the young Socrates, the old Socrates, you know, they can, all the atoms can change, but the form remains and therefore allows us to talk about the con- continuity uh, despite uh, the change. Mm-hmm. So it struck us that the public sphere models were, were basically kind of um, unable to meet their own desire um, because of this model. They all wanted to be non-reductive. They all wanted to be as inclusive as possible. And yet they were really struggling because um, this model meant that they couldn't think outside of um, the, the idea of the, the, the space moulding the discourses. Now, what's interesting is then to try and conceive of how it might be different and uh, you know, hats off to Chris here because he kind of took uh, he took us to um, one of the great kind of um, philosophical uh, critiques of um, hylomorphism, which is in the work of uh, Gilbert Simondon. And um, Simondon effectively kind of uh, describes this whole project as an attempt to think through the nature of the individuals that we have without having to rely upon hylomorphic models that kind of, um, you know, um, mold and matter um, model. And of course, this then famously kind of gives us a a really interesting uh, alternative picture of how um, the individuals can be said to emerge from what he calls these kind of metastable conditions um, and how that then mutually kind of um, changes not just the nature of the individual that's emerged, but the nature of the metastable conditions themselves. Mm-hmm. 
okay, all very tricky stuff. But what it does, in a sense, is just open up a different way of thinking about how um, publics and counterpublics and any kind of intervention in the public sphere can emerge that's not going to be conditioned by the need for it to be molded mm-hmm. by this notion of, this, of the public sphere itself. And what, you know, what kind of fascinates me about that um, is that, you know, and this is of course not coincidental because, you know, Simondon and Foucault were um, effectively PhD students together, um, is that, you know, um, Simondon is giving us a way of thinking about what it is to be, quote, an individual, but an individual here again in lots of different senses, whether it's physical or vital or psychosocial, um, an individual always from with, from the middle. It's, it's, a, it's a way of accounting for, in, for individuation from the middle, just as Foucault gave us a genealogy, a genealogical way of thinking in the middle, and Deleuze and Guattari, through the rhizomatics, have given us a way of thinking about um, the relationship between the one and the many and the macro and the micro and many other things from the middle. And I think in that sense, the kind of Simondon still connects for me to, to, to those uh, ways of thinking about um, uh, kind of critical methods. All of which, um, just to kind of round off, um, you know, brings me back to, to uh, kind of where I started. I mean, you know, if we, if we embrace a kind of, uh, you know, critical thought as a form of creative thought, then it kind of gives us the possibility for shaking away these models that have been lurking in the background, you know, constraining our thought. And it gives us a way of thinking about, for good or for ill, some of the uh, challenges that now face us, pandemic or not, today, with a virus, tomorrow, without a virus, whatever it is, we are always in need of critical thought. And that will be, you know, a great um, moment of creativity uh, that we can kind of embrace. Ian, thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts with us. Uh, I think we can agree that, as you said, every day can be the best day to cultivate an awareness of critic and understanding of how to practice critical thought, a habit of identifying thought that is not critical, and the reflective approach to the public sphere, it has potential and its challenges. And uh, thank you very much for, for, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much, Evelyn. It's been yeah, a complete pleasure. It's, it's a pleasure to listen to you. And, and well, that brings us to the end of another Picked Voices episode. Thank you all for tuning in. And we hope to welcome you at another one of our podcasts soon. Of course, our biggest hope remains to come face-to-face with you again at one of our events as soon as possible. Until that can happen, stay healthy and safe.